You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader and Dr. Evan Thompson discuss consciousness and the self. We grow, our body changes, our brain changes, and even the atoms in our body change. And yet there is a very profound attachment to the sense of self that continues beyond the transformations we experience. How do we experience ourself in different states of consciousness? When we're awake, when sleeping, and when dreaming? Dr. Evan Thompson is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia and an associate member of both the Department of Asian Studies and the Department of Psychology. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and his work combines cognitive science, philosophy of mind, phenomenology, and cross-cultural philosophy, especially Asian philosophical traditions. His most recent books include Why I Am Not a Buddhist, and Waking, Dreaming, Being. We have a wonderful guest in our discussion today, Dr. Evan Thompson, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Thompson, you grew up with a family that nurtured you in higher values, spiritual values, and you went for it wholeheartedly. <laughs> Particularly, you've been interested in Asian philosophical traditions. And you've written wonderful books, and one of the more recent ones, Why I Am Not a Buddhist, even though you're a great expert in Buddhism. We are delighted to be with you and to think together and learn from you. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So one of the things that Buddhism highlights quite a bit and many have written about and try to explain is the sense of self and whether there is a self or not. I'd like to start with just the idea of the self and how did you end up sorting this out, let's say, in a sense, from the idea that there is no real self to understanding what the self is, what is meta-consciousness, how do they relate to our experience, and discuss this in some ways and see whether this is a question of fundamental reality or maybe even just semantics, actually, how you call it. Mm -hmm. So would that be a good way to, to start our thinking? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So I've written about this idea of self from different vantage points. Uh, in my book, Waking Dreaming Being, which is really about consciousness and the sense of self, the feeling of having or being a self, what I am interested in there is how we experience across different states of being awake, absorbed concentration, if we're focused on a task or or maybe mind wandering or or daydreaming, and then falling asleep, 
where we enter into a kind of borderline state between waking and dreaming, and then the full-blown experience of having a dream or having a lucid dream where you're dreaming and, and then you come to realize or know that you're dreaming. What I was interested in that book is how our sense of self, our experience of, of being a subject of experience shifts across these different states in a way that implies differences in what we identify with as ourself. So in the waking state, we very much identify ourself with our body. You know, our sense of self is where our body feels to be located, you know, where we're looking out from our eyes or, you know, how our body moves. But of course, if we start to mind wander or daydream, then the sense of self becomes caught up in a chain of thought in which we have a kind of awareness that that we are the ones thinking or or mind wandering but also we have an image a mental image of self if you you know if you remember um you know the the first uh, moment that you can recall from waking up today you know you will have a sort of mental image of yourself back in the bed maybe you know you experience it from a kind of immersed first person perspective or maybe you see yourself from the outside as if you're sort of hovering in the room and looking down on yourself in the bed. So that's a kind of mental image of self. So, and, and that happens in dreams as well. Of course, in the dream state, we create a kind of mental image of self that typically we identify with as if that's myself, my, my being in the dream, my body in the dream. And then in a lucid dream, that changes again because we have this larger sense of awareness where the self in the dream isn't all there is to the, to the self. So in that book, I'm very much interested in how the way that I put it is that how the sense of self is constructed. And by constructed, I mean put together from different aspects of the mind and, and the body in a, in a constantly creative, dynamic way. Now, some people, some people classically in, in say, Indian philosophy, or some people today very influenced by neuroscience, will say, well, the self is really an illusion because there is no one single thing that is remaining constant through all those changes in what you identify with as, as yourself. It, it feels like there's a persisting essential I, but really it's constantly changing and it's made up of these shifting mental and, and bodily experiences. So they'll say, for example, the self is a construct of the brain. They might link this to ideas in Buddhism where the idea is that the self is a kind of um, illusion, that that feeling of being a subject or an agent is really based on a, on a kind of misperception of how this constructive process is happening. And, and indeed, from a certain perspective, you could you could use the word illusion, but I prefer to say that it's a construction rather than an illusion because it's it's a construction that that serves important functions i mean you need a sense of self in order to have memory you need a sense of self in order to plan for your future so it may have illusory aspects but i prefer to um to really think of it as a kind of ongoing construction yet we know that people are very much attached to the self and the mm -hmm. sense of some continuity is there, even though there is change, we grow, our body changes, our atoms are no more there in our body as they were ever, maybe after a few years, not even one atom is, is still in our body. And our structure of our functioning, even the physiology, including the brain, they change. And yet there is this very profound attachment to the sense of self uh, that continues, which means even though it might be different in different ways, 
there is a sense nonetheless of me and continuity of myself as something uh, beyond the changes, beyond the transformations. Mm -hmm. It is kind of mysterious, if you like, if we don't find an ultimate cause for it or an ultimate foundation for that sense of self. Mm -hmm. Now, just to take an example, if you ask a physiologist or a medical doctor about self and non-self, the first thing that comes to our mind when, you know, I was uh, as a medical doctor and, and, and a physiologist, neurophysiologist even, is the self and non-self as part of the even immune system. The immune system, which actually uh, recognizes this is how we fight bacteria, this is how we fight foreign materials, this is how we heal ourselves, etc. So there is a sense of, of continuity of the self uh, in that sense, physiologically, and also morally, ethically, uh, with sense of responsibility, sense of what I have done, what will happen to me, which is part of memory. And one thing I, I notice a lot in the discussions is how much people are attached to what will happen to that me after the body drops and after we die. And so these are very existential questions. And do you want to comment on these points? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. They are very existential questions. And when you start really probing them, then... Uh, you know, different traditions of thought will say will say different different things uh, about these questions. So, one aspect of self that you know you were just invoking in relationship to the immune system is what we might call a kind of functional biological sense of identity. That that that's basic to life. I mean, a cell, a single cell, a bacterial cell, for example, has to constantly construct itself as a unitary being through its metabolism and gene expression so that it has you know a kind of membrane boundary that distinguishes it from what's not self and if that becomes compromised in its functioning then the cell dies or no longer has that identity and that's a basic feature of of biological life as we understand it this kind of constructed identity now in the sense of self that has more to do with, you might say, the mental sense of how we feel of being or having a self, I think here, here we really start to go into, you know, different different traditions will have different perspectives on this. So for example, in in Indian philosophy, um, the Buddhist attitude is very much, well, if you look for that fundamental sense of a persisting, underlying, unified awareness that is you, you won't find anything that exactly answers to it. And that's the sense that it's an illusion, according to their way of thinking. You'll find changing states of awareness, but you won't find an enduring self. Whereas other traditions, you know, Hindu traditions will say, well, no, that that awareness is, is an enduring, constant awareness that, that witnesses the changes of the body and the mind. And that's a deep, you know, philosophical difference that the Buddhists and the Hindus argued about, you know, over centuries. That's, you know, if you're a philosopher like me, of course, this this is fascinating philosophically. But I think existentially, indeed, we we do have this this sense of of identity or identification. And then, you know, death is the dissolution of that. And it is a question 
whether that's the ultimate dissolution and 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 a cessation in which there is no continuity of anything other than the decay the you know the physical continuity of decay or whether there is some kind of um spiritual or mental persistence of awareness i, I myself try to keep a very open mind about that question i i don't think we're in a position to say yes or no in answer to that question so in my own work i try to I try to always keep that question as an open question. This is how I put it in Waking Dreaming Being, is keeping keeping an, an open mind and an open question in the face of what is the ultimate kind of existential confrontation for each of us, which is our dying and our death. Yeah, this particularly, you know, one of the great wisdoms of time and repeated in so many traditions, so many ways, is know thyself. And, mm. and when we say know thyself, people imagine knowing one's qualities, one's shortcomings, so that you know how to behave and what to do. But as you say, the self, that, pa that part of the self is constantly reconstructed. You know, when we are not, uh, haven't done our studies, university studies, we have certain capacities, certain knowledge, certain predispositions, which are changing with, uh, with knowledge and study and growth, etc. And there is also, since you evoked it, that sense uh, from the traditions of a small self and a big self, mm -hmm. which is very much in the Vedic Indian tradition and knowledge that the small self is an ahamkar, is just a manifestation of atma, the, the big right. self. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately there is one consciousness which appears as many, and it can be changed because it does have these different colors and flavors. And so there is even the idea, and I want to hear your feeling about it, that actually there is only one self ultimately. Mm -hmm. So that thing which is called an illusion in Buddhism is about the individual self being separate entity as if as if something that is separated and belongs to somebody and is really there. And there is that sense of unbounded existence, some kind of consciousness. I think we call it, you know, self-luminous consciousness. You have used also these terms in your mm -hmm. discussions. That is unbounded. That is a notion of consciousness, in fact. Yeah that is actually itself appearing as many. Mm -hmm. And so when I experience myself and I associate myself to that, it's actually that unbounded ocean of right. consciousness, which is experiencing one wave of its reality. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when you experience yourself or somebody else experience themselves, it's another wave, there is no question, but mm -hmm. it is still the ocean manifesting in these different, different waves. Mm -hmm. What do you feel about that approach? Well, it's interesting that you raised that because I was I was in a sense raised as a child in that worldview. My father he, my father was originally raised as as a Catholic, but he but he left the church when he was young and he um became a follower of the yoga practice and philosophy of Paramahansa Yogananda. And so when I was a little kid, he was he was really following that that spiritual path, you could say. And so I was raised with ideas from yoga and Vedanta. What what you just described is really the Advaita Vedanta worldview that, 
you know, comes to us, especially through Shankara, the great Indian philosopher who is developing those ideas by way of interpreting the Upanishads. So I, I was raised in that in that way of thinking. And so I find it very familiar and very um I'm very fond of it. I'm very I'm very close to it in many ways. I I I would say that I have a deep appreciation for it. But I would also say that as I, you know, grew up and was educated and studied Indian philosophy and Indian religion in its you might say historical cultural context and i saw how that was one voice in a conversation with other viewpoints that were different so even within vedanta you have the idea you know ramanuja has the idea that well there are really there are individual atman but they're all sort of like individual pieces of a larger whole it's not as if there's one ocean it's more like a mosaic with each you know individual tile making up this greater magnificent image so that was kind of a difference in metaphor and thinking within vedanta and then of course the buddhists who think that that idea of a universal a universal kind of atman brahman unity from their from from certain buddhist perspectives that view would still be considered a kind of you might say the the last deepest remnant of a self illusion <laughs> other buddhists of course would have analogous ideas so the idea of buddha nature you know is sort of analogous at least as i see it to that that kind of universal atman you know all you know buddha nature is one and we all have buddha nature that's very similar to the idea of of atman in um the vedanta advaita vedanta understanding so my own you know my own approach to all of those things is I have a deep appreciation for them, but as a philosopher, I'm trained to be, you could say, skeptical and critical and I and to and to pressure test ideas both practically and theoretically. So although I I I have a, a kind of you know personal appreciation and familiarity with that idea, it's I wouldn't say that I, you know, I just assert it or subscribe to it. It's more something that's part of my, it's very much part of my worldview. But again, it's it's a matter of keeping the open the open question or the open frame of mind in, in just speaking personally. How do you think we can ultimately resolve this from <laughs> an empirical yeah. and rational point of view? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a way out? Because we can go into meditation, which also you're a great expert in different types of meditation and have looked into it, has been on both sides of the story, uh, believing and giving it its chance to, to do something and then critically examining it and, uh, you know, going back and forth into these directions. What we have is, if I can just propose, is experiential, cognitive experience, subjective experience. We can have also scientific uh, analysis of reality because ultimately, it comes to what is ultimate reality. Now, when we say the self and nothing and everything is vanishing and everything is vanishing, there is no individual self or the self is part of a mosaic or the self kind of melts into ultimate self and whether that ultimate self is also an illusion in a sense. But then what are we left with? You know, anayata or <laughs> nothingness. So we have this, in my mind, the question of what could explain the phenomena and what could explain life and what could explain 
the sense of individual self, what could explain evolution and life and our meaning in existence and all of that. So that would be the explanatory power of whatever theory one would want to propose, because now when we come to this metaphysical kind of question about ontology and what is the source of everything, we have to see what makes sense rationally, what has an explanatory power, but also to some extent, what is our experience? So the empirical side on it. So if we were to ask how to come to a conclusion, how to solve that conundrum, mm. uh, what would you expect science to do? What you'd expect philosophy to do, spirituality, meditation, to show us the path towards an understanding of ultimate reality? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. That's no, a great question. I mean, what I think there is that it's very important to have a kind of um, humility and sense of our limitations as human beings. So I would say that we have different kinds of knowledge. You know, scientific knowledge is in our present day Western culture, um, obviously, you know, the most developed um, form of, of knowledge. And that's very much a, a kind of outwardly focused knowledge based on, in a way, abstracting away from experience to try to characterize objects through, you know, models and methods and um, ways of, you know, interacting and manipulating them for our instrumental ends, whether it's in, you know, physics or, or medicine or what have you. So that's a kind of just, you know, to use sort of maybe somewhat simplistic terminology, a kind of outer knowledge of the world where we try to render it as much as possible independent of experience. This is classically what, you know, the origins of modern science is about in Galileo and Newton yeah. and, and even in Einstein. And then, of course, there's the fact that nevertheless, all of that depends on our experience as human beings, as conscious subjects, as ex as um, immersed in the world with a with a with a conscious experiential life. And so traditions that are concerned with, you could say, spirituality or wisdom or phenomenology are interested in that consciousness that is, you know, behind science, that's necessary for science. And they try to turn the investigation around to gain some insight into consciousness itself. And then this is where we get questions about, you know, is there really a self or or isn't there a self when we when we try to investigate consciousness? So what I would say, though, is that if we turn things around and look at consciousness from within, it doesn't really reveal from within what its source is. And if we look at it from without, then we we turn away from consciousness and we actually, in a sense, can't see it and how it would come about in the world. So we're kind of caught, I think, in a loop where we can't quite catch our own tail and we have to have a kind of humility and, and understanding of the limitations of our knowledge frameworks, whether, you know, internally when we practice, say, meditation or philosophy or know thyself, but also externally when we when we pursue science. So I would, I guess, you know, to 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 answer your question more directly, I would say that I'm I, I don't think we're in a position to be able to answer a question like, you know, what is the nature of ultimate reality? What we can do is we can say, you know, here is how reality looks when we investigate it through science and here is how consciousness looks when we when we quiet our minds and try to still them and gain some more intimate understanding 
And um, we need to pursue both of those avenues, and we need to try to interrelate them more closely than we've done in our culture up to this point. That I, that's where I see the important project. And then where that leads, well, we have to see. Um, that's an open question. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. If we were to look at where we are today, in fact, and check out the where did the objective approach, as we mentioned, the scientific approach where we keep the subject out of the experiment and try to see what is ultimate reality, in fact, Science has probed into that uh, since the Greeks and even much before, thinking that you can take any object and divide it into pieces and at the end you end up with an atom, something indivisible. And then modern science discovered that that is also made out of divisible parts, quarks and subatomic particles. And then what is very fascinating when quantum mechanics came and the analysis rationally and experimentally it found to be fields, actually. All of these forces and particles are fields of electromagnetism, weak force, strong force, and gravity. And more and more scientists have unified those fields so that what used to look like electricity as different from magnetism is actually electromagnetic field. It's one field. And then they unified the weak force, making it a weak electromagnetic force. And then now there are theories for the strong force. And there are, you know, thousands of scientists and physicists looking to unify the ultimate unification with a super string theory and M theory and all of that, that actually is guiding us to uh, that one field, ultimately, it looks like, is the source of all the manifestation. Now, this unified field is not yet fully understandable from a perfect mathematical structure, although there are theories that really kind of come very close to it. Experientially, experimentally, let's say, it is not easy to, uh, to check, but things are going in the right direction. And so what I'm saying is that on the objective level, it does seem that as if there is an ocean that manifests with different waves, which are the fluctuations of this field. And this is what creates the elementary particles that then somehow collapse into uh, localized time and space entities that we call the physical world. So what I'm trying to do is follow your thinking about what this side will say, what this side will say, what that side will say and see if they diverge or they converge. So the idea of mosaic, or let's say even panpsychism, where there are individual entities that are conscious or uh, individual even materialist perspective are falling apart in the sense that even materialism is now physicalism because it's all energy and it's all one field. And, you know, this then we can just start to say that this idea of mosaic may not be in the right direction from the physics perspective. So that kind of uh, thinking helps us also to see what is reality from how we analyze it scientifically. Now, when we go back to Buddhism and, and Advaita and ancient philosophy and also in meditation, I know you have also questions about the experiences within meditations and what they are, and we'll come to the embodied mind, which is a wonderful concept uh, of 
of a mind i let you explain it i don't want to take the words from your mouth we can actually start seeing that there is something that is unifying now whether it is some energy we don't know where it comes from this one field this unified field or it could be also consciousness if one adopts the idealist perspective uh, you know spinoza and leibniz and advaita vedanta and others many others but then there is a gap in explanation how does the material appear from the non-material and this uh, just to say this has been my concern and my work and my interest in explicating uh, the actual connectedness between this but it seems to me that if we create or if we come to a paradigm that can have explanatory power on the ontology side epistemology side and even if we can go to ethics and the physical uh, laws of nature and natural law uh, it might be the way we can end up sorting out what ultimate reality is well i would say that in all humility of course <laughs> yeah yeah right i mean i would say that uh things in i'm not a physicist but i do i do collaborate with with physicists so i'm somewhat familiar with um some of the issues and i i would say that you know there's so many open questions and unknowns about things at the level of fundamental physics that the idea that we could arrive at some kind of unity in that domain that would then explain everything else having to do with you know life for example in biology i'm quite skeptical of that way of thinking about science i think science works at different levels and it constructs models and the models are idealized and abstract and the links between them are always actually more difficult to construct than people who who say well we just can have a kind of unification and then all of the other levels will sort of naturally fall into place so i think of science in a more kind of inherently um, diverse pluralistic way than just one kind of grand unified story particularly in the case of the mind and consciousness i think there are some some very um fundamental issues about i mean one way i would put it is that classically you know physics tries to remove the mind and then it turns out you know we run into problems when we do that in quantum physics because it seems like the measurement and the observer is now something we have to we have to take account of and even in say relativity theory we have the idea of um of time as if it's sort of laid out all at once in a block but that doesn't really account for our experience of here and now the present moment which you need even to sort of um to do your physics so i think that what happens is we we pursue a sort of maximally outward directed path and then that throws us back into what we tried to remove which is consciousness and experience but then if we try to follow the thread of consciousness and experience we're sort of thrown back out into things like our embodiment our being in the world um the different forms of life that um that sustain consciousness at least as we think of it in the in the biological world so we're in this kind of loop where we circle around and circle around and i think that we can gain a lot of insight in being in that loop and and taking more awareness of the fact that we're in this loop instead of trying to pretend that we're not but i don't see it as 
as a, as ending in a kind of one unified story. I think I think there are likely going to be many different kinds of stories that we link in different ways depending on the context. That's my that's my own way of thinking about it. Ah, wonderful. It is interesting that you know if we now come to the embodied mind, that you have actually unified uh, what people were thinking that the mind is in this box in the brain. Mm. And that, uh, you know, now we say the mind is also in the liver and what happens in the stomach and in the finger. And beyond that, you take it to the environment and the ecology of the mind. You want to tell us about this wonderful aspect that you have championed, the embodied mind? Yeah, so the so the embodied mind is really so it's the name of a book I did um, many years ago with a, a with a neuroscientist Francisco Varela who was my my mentor. He was um, a very pioneering uh, neuroscientist in and and biologist in in many different ways. He was also a very philosophical thinker and very um, committed to to Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist practice. So we we developed this idea. Uh, in collaboration with others, we weren't the only ones to do this, of thinking of the mind, or you might say cognition and perception, what the mind does, as not something that happens inside the brain, so but that happens in, in the whole body in relationship to the environment. So an analogy that I sometimes use is, is saying that the the mind is in the brain or or that thinking is in the brain is a bit like saying that flying is in the wings of the bird you know you need the bird needs wings to fly but flying is something that the whole bird does in relationship to its environment so mind or or it's better to think of it as a process mind is a noun but but mind in the sense of active perceiving and cognizing is something that the whole organism or the whole person does in relationship to the um, environment. So for example, in the case of perception, that means that perception isn't an event that happens in the head. It's part of a, a relation to the world that involves acting, moving your eyes, moving your head, moving your body, approaching things, moving away, changing the appearances, knowing how things change, how they look based on how you move in relationship to them. That's what perceiving perceiving is. So the embodied mind is really that idea that we approach the um, mind through the whole body and its relationship to the environment, and that um, it's a relational it's a relational phenomenon rather than something that happens in a localized way in the head. Wonderful. And when you were saying about going around and and showing it mm -hmm. in, in a circle way, some thought came to me about transcendence which means mm -hmm. going beyond the 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 circling yeah and so there is this uh, you know we teach transcendental meditation it's part of the techniques that come to us from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi mm -hmm. and the Vedic mm -hmm. tradition where it's to go beyond is the idea of experiencing the self so on the cognitive mm -hmm. level to go to a place where the self or you know we're calling it the self or that that uh, self luminous consciousness or that mm. consciousness that is itself the unified field if you like from the spiritual perspective or from the uh, vedic perspective mm -hmm. and that if that is the ultimate reality and we have the machinery in our nervous system to experience and go closer to it 
then instead of intellectually analyzing or putting the attention on outer aspects as you know in open monitoring or you know focusing or whatever different mm -hmm. techniques of mindfulness and concentration and contemplation techniques we have the ability to actually dive deep into the inner value into that pure consciousness and transcend and so we have people who report transcending and who have in our experience and including my experience that it is possible to have consciousness without content in consciousness, which means mm -hmm. not a memory, not a thought, not an experience, not a feeling, but just being conscious of being conscious mm -hmm. beyond meta-consciousness, but pure consciousness, we can say. Mm -hmm. Would this be something that is significant in the, in the range of the analysis of phenomena or experience? Mm -hmm. that can guide to a possibility of finding an ultimate reality? I would say that those experiences and, and reports of, of pure consciousness are extremely important things to study and to, and to try to understand as best we can. Uh, I would say that at the same time, how to interpret them and to relate them to other types of meditation practices or experiences is an open question. It's not, in other words, if if you have an experience and a report, it, it doesn't carry with it its own sort of self-certifying interpretation. It has to be studied and 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 characterized. So, you know, I have no doubt about the genuineness of 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 people who report those experiences and of the phenomenon that they are reporting that there is a that there is a kind of experience of awareness or experience of consciousness in which um you you could say awareness itself has a character that is different from any content that you could have in awareness any thought or any memory so you know we could call that if you like pure awareness or pure consciousness so i think that those experiences are significant and important and genuine but I I would be very hasty in in inferring because that's really what we're doing inferring from them that they reveal the underlying nature of reality because what those experiences are they're experiences and experiences don't them they're not themselves transparent about their generative source in other words it might seem yes. I could put it this way it might seem that when you have an experience of pure consciousness, that it is its own source, that it is a kind of unchanging ground state that's the source of its own luminosity. It could appear that way, and that could be phenomenologically indeed um, the proper way to describe it. But it doesn't actually follow logically that that is the case, that, that, that one has to make a metaphysical inference, and that inference then... Um, is uh is a, is a question it, it raises a question about well what other possible alternatives are there how do we relate this to other types of phenomena that we study or experiences that we report so that's where i think again i fall back onto my you know i think the open mind and the investigative attitude is extremely important but i wouldn't say that those experiences of transcendence in and of themselves show that re that reality is pure consciousness let's say 
Obviously, it's wonderful, yes. And that's why we're looking for converging factors in a sense. Mm -hmm. So not one phenomenon or one experience or one finding in physics or one logic will be enough by itself to give us a definitive answer to a very big metaphysical questions. But if there is some convergence, for example, Suppose those people who experience this transcending, which is actually the case, uh, improve their health, improve their well-being. And suppose, which is also the case, that when a number of them transcend, they create an influence on society. And suppose we can analyze this scientifically and uh, do it in a systematic way and show that actually there is some transformation in the body, in the mind, in the behavior, and in the environment based on transcendence, which in our case is transcendental meditation, which is the simplest way that I know about to transcend, then we have yet one more factor that comes into the equation. Even that factor is not by itself in all humility (laughs) and investigative thinking, is not by itself, of course, an explanation or a, a demonstration or a conclusion about ultimate reality. However, now if we start asking ourselves, what is the purpose of things? Why we are here? What's the meaning of life? Uh, Can we explain why there is suffering? Can we explain why there is evil? Can we explain, you know, the phenomena in physics? Uh, And we start looking at it from, from a certain perspective. And if this perspective actually also is, let's say, not just in, not in contradiction, but could support the idea, then what I'm proposing is that when we have many, many of these factors, they start converging, maybe that's the way when we can start saying that we are closer to the truth, we are closer to the ultimate understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would say that um, we need to proceed very carefully in that. So in the case of, say, studies that show positive effects of different kinds of meditation practices, I think we need to be very cautious to make sure that we have really isolated the factors that are specific to meditation that don't have to do with other things that go along with meditation. You know, so, for example, um, Practicing together in a group has positive benefits because of the group spirit, you could say, the, you know, the feeling that you have meaning and purpose and a group that shares it. Um, that in itself is an inherently positive thing. So whenever we study, uh, I mean, you know this, of course, because you're a scientist, whenever we, we study a phenomenon and we want to attribute some kind of causal power to it, we have to really make sure that we've you know distinguished all the things in the phenomena that have the you know the the different kinds of um the different kinds of causal factors and i think in the in the science on meditation i think that this is um of course the scientists themselves know this but there's been a lot of hype about you know the positive benefits of meditation without as much critical scrutiny to the complexity of meditation even as a social phenomenon that you know we're instructed by a a warm and charismatic teacher who makes us feel valued and validated that's a positive thing in addition to the the actual mental practice that we do so we need to be cautious about those things and then i would say that the danger with unification is that we try to unify 
questions that are really very different kinds of questions that don't really need to be unified and that we would distort if we unified. So a question about, you know, what is the meaning of life or what is the nature of suffering? I mean, for me, these are ethical, religious, philosophical questions that in their their meaning and logic are just very, very different from the kinds of questions we ask in science about about causation. Yeah, they have more um, dynamics and and exactly right. <laughs> electromagnetism exactly. and all that. Right, right. It's a bit like you know, if you if you you know you go to the Louvre and you see the Mona Lisa, and then you start analyzing you know the the chemical composition of the pigments. Well, that's interesting, um, but that doesn't tell you anything you know directly about the aesthetic value of the Mona Lisa. That's in a completely different domain of art. So I similarly see questions about ethics and suffering and meaning as really in a very different domain from scientific questions. And I think that, you know, different human traditions say different things about those questions, sometimes compatible, sometimes not compatible. And the the value and richness can sometimes be in the incompatibility as much as the compatibility. It's like, you know, different voices in a conversation they don't have to agree. The value can be in the larger in the larger conversation itself without agreement. So again, I'm speaking as a philosopher. I like the different voices and the disagreements that you get if you ask, you know, a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Jew or a Taoist, you know, what is the meaning of life or, you know, the nature of suffering? And you get different answers. I, I mean, I think that speaks to the richness of human existence. Beautiful. So we keep looking for some unifying if it exists. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> we don't know if magically something comes and that is simplest and explains all of these phenomena. That's what I'm sure everyone who is in this field is looking for. And that's what I have been working on also in my thinking and writing and discussing. But it's, it's time now to ask you your feeling about this. Um, you have the book, Why I'm Not a Buddhist. And uh, it's a wonderful book explaining different factors and different reasons and different logics. Uh, what is in all uh, understanding that we have to be uh, humble in front of knowledge, we have to be open, we have to be careful about analyzing experience and analyzing findings. And yet somehow after a long life of research and study and looking at things from different perspectives. I think we all form kind of a worldview. And even though you could not say, well, that is what it is, but we want to ask Dr. Evan Thompson, uh, put him on the spot and on ask, spot. Uh, what is your hunch, let's say, not your definitive answer, your kind of inner sense and intuition about the metaphysical question, whether it's dualism, physicalism, materialism, mm -hmm. or going into the idealist perspective about mm -hmm. consciousness. Is consciousness an emerging quality? And you're saying why you're not a Buddhist, you can also comment on that because one can take something from a great tradition and it doesn't mean you uh, don't acknowledge it, which because you do, you do in a wonderful way. But there are things that you have reservations or questions about. And so now we're putting you on the spot in terms of your hunch and your feeling, your intuition. 
Yeah. And and you're putting me on the spot about about uh, consciousness, not about Buddhism, but about whether, you know, physicalism or dualism or panpsychism. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, that's, that's the, the most important part. You, you explain yeah. in your book and everybody's, you know, welcome and invited to read the book, which is wonderful to explain the other mm -hmm. facets. And if you like to mention some of it also, it would be wonderful. Okay. So the, the, the question about consciousness, that actually... I, I explore really more in the waking dreaming being book than why I'm not a Buddhist. So what I would say is that I'm I'm not I'm not a dualist in the sense that I think that consciousness is an essentially different, irreducible phenomenon from let's call it nature. That is to say, I, I'm a I'm a non-dualist. Let's put it that way. So you're a monist. <laughs> yeah. Well, m m monism. I prefer to use the word non non-dualism um, than than monism. But but that 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 maybe is not quite so relevant right at the moment. What I would say is that I think my suspicion, my intuition, is that for us to have a deep understanding of how consciousness is enfolded, let's say, into nature. We're going to need to have a, a, a radical revolution in our understanding of what nature is. In other words, we have characterized nature through science um, for the past 300, 400 years according to the worldview of physicalism, which abstracts away from consciousness, abstracts away from experience as part of its method, and leads to a certain conception of, of, of nature as physical – but that conception, I think, does not accommodate, at the end of the day, consciousness. So it's not that I think that consciousness is something separate and extra over and above nature. I think that we need to have a, have a kind of deep and revolutionary understanding in our conception of nature um, in order to accommodate consciousness. And I, I think that's how I would put it in a nutshell. So I'm not satisfied with panpsychism because most panpsychism has different versions, but most right. current versions of panpsychism basically say, you know, there is nature in the way that physics understands it today. And what we're going to add into that as a fundamental ingredient is consciousness. So it's as if you sort of take the physicalist worldview for granted and then you squirt consciousness as an extra ingredient into it and and i i find that totally unsatisfactory because it it works with our current physicalist understanding of nature which i think is inadequate and it works with a peculiar idea of consciousness which is some kind of like primitive qualitative characteristic that you're going to just inject into the micro particles at an elementary level so that kind of panpsychism I don't find attractive um, at all. So, yes, you could say I'm a kind of um, neutral monist or neutral non-dualist. I think reality is neither physical nor mental inherently, but both the physical and the mental arise as as aspects of a of a of a reality that's non-dual. That would be how I would. As if there is then a third element in a sense, because panpsychists, as you just described them, are actually dualists, but they're hiding it. That's right. That's and right. In, in exactly. a sense, yeah. in a sense, of course, Descartes says, "Okay, we have a mind, we have a body on the gross level." And now they say, "Let's take it to the atomic level, or the elementary particle, or whatever is the original kind of thing," and say, "There is the physical, and there is the mental." So it's a dualist, you know, on all levels. Yeah, I agree. So yeah. they are really a dualist, and so we're left with 
either it's consciousness as primary, which I, you know, um, like to support. <laughs> this sure, podcast sure. is called Consciousness is All There Is, and I give yeah, all yeah. the logic for it. Or right. material is the, the thing, which I find more difficult to say because whatever, for whatever reasons. Or maybe you're saying there is a third element. There is something other than consciousness, in a sense, or matter that has both in it. So that is, in a sense, some new factor that comes into play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say, I mean, another way I could put it, if I'm if I'm being completely honest and uh, forthright about, about what my, you know, intuitions and sensibilities are, is I would say that I've always been very drawn to to mystical tradition. So the the idea that, you know, reality is ineffable, escapes our, you know, concepts, our conceptual systems. So mental, physical, conscious, material, these are these are concepts and and they're important and we use them to, you know, to exist and get around in the world and 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 they have value. But um, but they're just maps we have and and reality, you know, utterly exceeds that in ways that the mind cannot um cannot frame or pin down so so that's really i suppose my like my deep kind of conviction i i guess would be the word yeah beautiful thank you so you've been through such depths of understanding and studying buddhism and now you say why i'm not a buddhist <laughs> yeah would you tell us something about that <laughs> Yeah, so the reason that I wrote that book is because I was so involved in the science Buddhism dialogue that that people just assumed that I was a Buddhist. Um, and so when I would say to them, well, actually, I'm not, then they would want to know why. So the title is not meant to be um, – it's not meant to be uh, – you know, re rejecting in any way the importance and value of Buddhism. It's more a kind of personal statement. And and the the reasons, there's sort of two different kinds of reasons. So one more immediate reason is that I, I grew up in a, you know, 1970s kind of alternative counterculture environment in which I was exposed to a lot of Western Buddhist teachers. And I found Buddhism very attractive in many ways, and at different times you could say tried to be a Buddhist. But what I would constantly come up against was a form of Buddhism that presented itself. So historians call this, you know, modern Western Buddhism or Buddhist modernism, that was very um exceptionalist in its thinking. It would say, you know, Buddhism is uniquely suited to science. Buddhism is uniquely rational and empirical. It's not really a religion, actually. It's a mind science or a therapy or a way of life. And this, I think, is simply distorting of Buddhism and of science and of, and of religion. You know, all religions in the modern world modernize themselves and try to um, present their ideas, unless they're fundamentalist, in ways that are more compatible with science. Buddhism is is not exceptional or unique in this way. And the idea that Buddhism isn't a religion is um, based on a kind of misconception of what religion is. It's It's based on this idea that Oh, it's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of personal experience. That's a very Protestant conception of religion. Um, if you if you look at what you know Buddhism is historically and what other religions are historically, it's about community. It's about textual traditions. It's about rituals. It's about answering questions about the meaning of life and the meaning of different states of consciousness. And Buddhism offers all of that. So it, it's very much a religion. So 
to make all of that, you know, to condense all of that, there wasn't really any way for me as a non-Asian person to be a, mo you know, to be a Buddhist in the modern world without embracing this kind of Buddhist modernist worldview, which as a philosopher, I just think is, um, is doesn't withstand critical scrutiny. So, so when I gained insight into that, then for me, I saw that I could relate to Buddhism as a very rich philosophical and religious tradition, but without having to sort of join the club of the modern Western Buddhist, let's put it that way. Uh, so that's one answer. Then a, a deeper philosophical answer is that Buddhism is, at least in its, let's say, classical Indian formation, in its its early phase, you could say. I mean, Buddhism transforms over many epochs and cultures, so it's not as if there's one Buddhism by any means. But in its early classical, you know, influential formation, it's it's based on the idea that existence, in the sense of change and impermanence, is inherently suffering and unsatisfactory, and that one needs to see that, recognize that, and then seek to transcend it. And I understand as, you know, a philosopher and someone who studied religion, how that way of thinking formed in the historical time, but it's not my way of thinking. I, I can't look at the world in that way. Of course, there is suffering in the world and suffering, you know, needs to be met with compassion and, and needs to be acknowledged and recognized, but the equation of existence with suffering is not a, is not a, it's not a perspective that I can, at the end of the day, embrace. Um, and so that at a deeper level then is why I would not be a Buddhist. Yeah. No. Well, that might be ingrained in the experience of the Buddha uh, going from uh, a situation of a wealthy, right. comfortable situation, going out in the world and finding that it's exactly. different. But that is also a kind of time, a kind of circumstantial a situation mm -hmm. circumstances uh, in that sense yeah. but we have lots of happiness and joy and bliss mm -hmm. in life also <laughs> that's right i mean buddhists do acknowledge that but but nonetheless at the end of the day they would say that you know it's it's tainted it's 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 yeah, tainted is actually the word and that's the perspective that i can't go along with yeah beautiful so it's wonderful we've been one hour together uh, mm. Thank you for your wonderful time. We could go for on and on with for so hours. Many... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have? We'd like to say something to our uh, viewers and listeners before we uh, close. No, no. Just thank you for the uh, opportunity to have a conversation. Very interesting topics, um, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Evan Thompson. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.